Enoho, Lisa. Hey, lovely to be with you this morning. Warm welcome if you're visiting with us. Welcome to St. Luke's. Um, very cool to be gathered together. Hey, we took an offering up last Sunday um, for Cyclone Relief to help two churches in Napier working um, in different ways to help people in their community and uh, in response to the cyclone and things like that. And just want to say a huge thank you for your um, generosity as a church. Uh, we were able to send $33,000 away, which is um, just exciting. So thank you so much. Um, we sent 16500 to each of these churches. Uh, my friends Lau and Nancy, they pastor a Samoan church in Napier, and they've got 500 people or 400 people sleeping in their church. I know that they've been... Uh, they had to get hold of 500 suitcases from somewhere. They're filling them with secondhand clothes and brand new clothes because they've, uh, they've got a lot of... Um, a lot of the seasonal workers that stay in um, dorms and things on orchards just lost everything. They, they don't have anything. They don't have their passports anymore. Most of them have got a jacket, a pair of shorts, and they managed to grab their cell phone and their charger. And that's like, um, which in the first instance was hard to find a place to plug the charger in anyway. So, uh, but they've just so appreciated that. Uh, um, Sam and Jen, they've got, they don't have a building, so they don't have people staying with them, but they've got um, people in their church hosting people that have don't have homes there. Uh, they've got families in their church that were completely flooded and lost everything. Um, some that had insurance, some that didn't. Uh, they're working with the Esk Valley Primary School. They're setting up the church marquee to give them a place to actually have school and meet. Uh, Sam only lives just probably five minutes from Esk Valley. He's around on the main, main drag there. So I just want to say a huge thank you for your generosity and support. It's so um, appreciated. Paul talked about boasting to certain churches about the generosity of that church and the other church. And I haven't boasted to any pastors, but there's a part of me that wants to just let all the other pastors know, hey, St. Luke's did a good thing. I'm proud of you. I appreciate it. Um, it's a real blessing. Uh, another piece of news, over the last six months, I've been working um, with some, uh, a little bit in response to some of the church headlines last year, but also in response to my journey as a pastor over the last 22 years, 23 years that I've been pastoring. Um, I did a master's degree. Uh, I didn't, wasn't interested in theology or the Bible. The reason I wasn't interested in it was because I knew all the answers. What I was interested in was um, leadership. So this master's degree came along in regards to leadership, and I signed up to do that because I'd do leadership stuff. And then I had to finish it with five Bible and theology papers. What a hassle just to kind of round it off. And I discovered I had a lot of questions and a lot of things I didn't know about that I had never explored. And it was a transformational uh, journey for me. Uh, so in light of my own journey, some of the stuff in the headlines, I've been kind of working with uh, Alpha Crucis in New Zealand and Australia, who I'm friends with and know lots of the lecturers there and, and team there, and then sending my tentacles out to try and recruit Pentecostal pastors I know around New Zealand to come and do a master's degree, come and do a master's degree. You've got a duty of care before God and your family and your church to, you know, do some stuff. And had a lot of people interested, but managed to in the end sign up 13. So we've got 13 pastors who have signed up to do a master's degree, uh, had the first block course the week just gone. Uh, as a church, we're helping sponsor five of those pastors with their course fees and things like that. So again, that's thanks to your generosity. And, and that influences them in a way that then goes on to influence their own church. And, and uh, again, thank you for your, your, your giving, your generosity, your support of these things that we're doing. It makes a real difference. Um, I forget, I, I don't, 
We're going to have a Sunday where we tell you the things we do, because I don't like talking about St. Luke's. I just like talking about Jesus and your life and the Bible. And then after a while, people go, you know, you should talk about church, because like we're all, it's all out. It's like, yeah, I should talk about that. So Andrew and Inez are in Nepal or Bangladesh. We were able to send $3,000 to help them with some work they're doing in, in a church there. And we've done lots of things, and I'm just like really bad at telling the story. So we're going to do better at telling the story and in-house things. But there's lots of good things happening. And so thank you so much for your generosity. I appreciate it. I was in the block course this week, and it was, uh, I've already done the course, I've already done the paper, different lecture, and I was just curating and hosting. And when you sit in theology for five, for five full days of the week kind of thing, and you, with the intention of writing a sermon in the evenings, uh, it's a nice idea, but in reality, um, it doesn't work, because your brain's just firing on a thousand different like degrees and a thousand different angles. And the, the course was Christian worldview. So we were looking at creation and fall and redemption and the person and work of Jesus Christ and eschatology and the nature of the church. It's like, there's a thousand things we could speak of, but I don't know, I don't have anything to speak on. So it was very, um, it was disorientating in terms of writing a sermon, but incredibly uh, encouraging and an absolute blast, uh, just not conducive. But nevertheless, we find ourselves in Lent and Lent invites us to explore some certain themes and uh, want to do that over the next few weeks. Uh, we'll do this Sunday and next Sunday, and then the third Sunday of Lent, I'm going to interrupt that, and we're going to do a Vision Sunday of sorts where we talk a little bit about St. Luke's as a church and fill you in some details and some of the things we feel on our heart as a leadership team for the church and things like that, and then we'll carry on. So I want to talk over the next little while about things like suffering, uh, things like creativity, things like faith, things like sin, and weave them around uh, this theme of Lent as we, um, as we journey towards uh, Easter, as we journey towards resurrection life. And uh, it would be nice to just arrive straight at um, resurrection life, but um, resurrection life comes on the other side of death and heartache and pain and despair. And so how do we make sense of some of those things? So in Lent, it's a season of prayer and fasting, repentance. Um, many of you have probably thought about things you could give up for the next 40 days. That's great, fasting of some sort. Don't forget to think about things you could pick up as well in terms of ways that you could tune into to God's voice over the next 40 days. And we've been talking about some of them, like pull out your highlighter in the Bible, though, or go for a coffee and have conversation with people, or sit in silence, or, or read a book, or get a devotional, just different ways you can tune in as well. So it's about letting go of some things, but it's about taking up some things as well. But um, all right, Lent, you asked for it. I'm going to give it what you want. We're going to talk about the doctrine of sin this morning. Uh, I wish I had a dun 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 for this as well, but uh, we're going to talk about sin this morning, because everybody's been asking for it, and uh, <laughs> thought we'd do it. No, the best, the best time to talk about things is like, like when you have a sense of like, the best time, it's, it's not good when pastors are short on money and so they start talking about money. That's not a good idea. Like you're not going to do that with a pure motive. Uh, it's not good to be talking about, um, uh, I don't know, certain travesties when people are having those travesties. It's like, let's not do that today. Um, so in light of just last Sunday, amazing offering, such generosity, your overflowing love, goodwill, righteousness, just the way that you're walking in step with the Spirit. We'll talk about sin this week because not a lot of it applies to you, and so you'll be able to actually <laughs> take it on board. So it's not talking about you. It's talking about the person next to you. All right, so uh, let's go. The doctrine of uh, sin. Uh, we sang the creed this morning, uh, I, which was awesome. I've got the creed in my sermon, and so take from that what you will. Um, 
more than coincidence. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried. He descended into death. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Then it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Church, the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. The icon that I've chosen is actually the resurrection icon. But it's a picture of Christ lifting Adam and Eve from the grave, lifting Adam and Eve from the place of death. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. To to confess the forgiveness of sins, though, presupposes that we also believe in sins, that sin is a real thing, that, that sin is something that is a part of the human condition that we have to walk through, navigate, figure out. So you can't believe in the forgiveness of sins without actually also believing in sins as well in the first place. So, so what's going on? What are we talking about when we talk about sin? Uh, up on the next slide, we've got a few things. We're talking about humanities having fallen short. We're talking about humanity having missed the mark, fallen short, missed the mark in regards to what? Fallen short and missed the mark in regards to being the image-bearing icons of God that they were created to be. Created to be image-bearing icons of God. I've told it many times, but uh, for Israel coming out of Egypt in the, in the Egyptian context and other Middle Eastern contexts, uh, a temple would be built. temple would be built, and then uh, somebody would carve an idol. They'd take the idol to a sacred garden where priests would perform rites over it and breathe upon it and animate the idol, and then that would be installed in the temple as a representative of God. Uh, Formation, animation, and installation. And you can read people's doctorate theses about that if you want. Formation, animation, and installation. And then Israel comes along and the the story of Israel goes, "No, no, no, you've heard it said, but I actually say unto you, no, 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 no. The whole of creation is God's temple. The heavens are his throne. The earth is his footstool. Humanity is formed in the sacred garden. Humanity is animated, breathed upon the spirit of God, the ruach, the breath of God animates humanity. And humanity is installed in God's great temple to be the image of God, the icons of God, to represent to creation what God is like and to bring the faithful worship of creation to God. That's what it is to be an image bearer. It's to, it's to represent what God's like and to bring faithful worship to God. It's the, in Peter and in Revelation, it talks about us being restored to our priestly vocation, representation and worship. Sin is the various ways in which we, we just fall short of that. We fail to represent what God's really like. We fail to worship God with full fidelity and full faithfulness. We veer off course and worship other things. We pursue other things. At the heart of it, that's the, that's the nature of sin. We miss the mark in these different ways. We pledge allegiance to other false gods and everything but confession. We don't confess that we worship money but, and everything but money or, or this and that. And the other. But they've got their own choruses as well. Uh, Frank Sinatra has the famous worship chorus, I Did It My Way, sings allegiance to individualism. 
we'll do it ourselves. Uh, the Beatles have their famous um, song about money. Money's all I want. Money's all I want. Uh, John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. All this, this, this famous worship song towards enlightenment and world peace. And we'll get there just by having our consciousness expanded. And imagine that. It would be no heaven above us, no hell beneath. You know, oh, amazing John Lennon. It's a, it's a false worship song. Chumbawamba's I get knocked down, but I get up again. It's about drinking the night away. Madonna's got material girl. Material girl. I'm a material girl living in a material world. It's about consumerism and, and money and all of these kinds of things. Tom Jones has got a song, Sex Bomb, worship of sexual fulfillment and these kind of things. Just take note of that. There's not many pastors that can tie together Chumbawamba, Tom Jones, and the Beatles. So there you go. But, but what are they? They're, they're popular songs. It's songs that you, you might know, I don't know what song that is. If I put it on, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I know what, that's, I know what that song is. I probably know the lyrics kind of thing. Because they're, they're, they're the choruses that are at a popular level are actually, actually confessing allegiance to other ideologies that promise salvation in various forms, promise to set us free or fulfill us or redeem us or, or offer us peace or prosperity or whatever it might be. Uh, we sang this morning, again, this is without... Um, Rosie didn't know what I was going to talk about. I didn't know what songs Rosie was singing. We, she's singing, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? And then there's that line, no other fount I know, which is old English. What, what's a fount? No other source I know. There's, there's not another source. There's not another, there's not another God. There's not another thing within creation that can wash my sins away, that can make me whole. I'm not going to sing those other songs. Oh, you might sing those other things, but they're not my worship chorus because they're not the source of that which will make me whole. So we, we misrepresent and we appropriate the worship of God elsewhere. We send the worship of God elsewhere, false idols. This is destructive. The Bible talks of being destructive even unto death. God's life and light, and in him there is no darkness. But to worship an alternative is to worship something other than God. And it's to invite, ultimately, darkness and death. To misrepresent God is to, is to represent something that is an antithesis of God. Oh, I fail, how do I fail to represent what God's like? Wow, I fail to represent God's like at times when I'm greedy. Because God's not greedy. Well, what's greed? Well, greed is something that you get enough people being greedy, it begins to become this kind of principality of power of hoarding and holding and putting up walls and putting up fences? Does that lead to life and light and darkness? No, greed never leads to life and light and darkness. Greed is to misrepresent God, and we end up representing that which is the antithesis of God, and it's dehumanizing and it's destructive. Represent malice or violence or hatred, darkness. And it's destructive to misresent, it's destructive to misworship because we enthrone aspects of creation. When enough people worship the same aspect of creation, it, it takes on a life of its own and it becomes a principality and a power that rules over us. You worship aspects of creation, enough people do that, you know, what, what could we say, um, bodyboarding, it's probably not recognized as a principality and power in our world. If enough people did, if enough people had pledged allegiance to bodybuilding, uh, bodyboarding, such that 
such that they're neglecting families and they're neglecting to, you know, money's being misdirected and all of their time's going to bodyboarding. Well, if enough people did that, over time it would become a principality and power. It's not. Bodyboarding, bodyboarding hasn't really become that. But the pursuit of money or the pursuit of individualism or the pursuit of consumerism, all these other things. Well, there's so many people that, that aspire to that, that or the desire for power or the desire for influence or the desire for promotion or the desire to like be a self-governed person that doesn't listen to what anyone says. Well, there's so many people in our world pursuing that. It becomes a principality and power. It becomes a ruling authority. It becomes a principle in our world. Well, surely you have to live like that. That's, that's how you live, isn't it? It's like, well, no, no, that's destructive. Ways that lead to darkness. The root cause, though, is, of course, hearts that want the position of the creator rather than that of the creature. That's what we see in the story of Adam and Eve. We see these, they're lifting for the knowledge, they're reaching and grasping for the knowledge of good and evil, which was not to be theirs they wanted the oh, well, we know what's best for us. We know what will be good for us. We want to rule and govern our own lives. Don't we? We want to rule and govern our own lives. I joked during Advent, the Advent readings, so many of the Advent readings are, and an angel of the Lord appeared and said, Fear not. I've got a message for you. I've got a quest for you. I've got a journey for you to go on. I've got something for you to do. And we go, Yay! And they're like, how many people want an angel of the Lord to show up and send you on a quest and give you a message and a journey? We're like, oh, no, thank you. I want to hear about the amazing angel of the Lord experience that Caleb had. I don't want the angel of the Lord to interrupt my well-ordered and planned and directed life. We know the right answer is to say, yes, we want an angel of the Lord to just change the whole direction of our lives. We know that's the right answer if we were to do the quiz, Sunday school quiz. If we do the honest answer, though, oh, I really want to rule and govern my own life, and I like Jesus to be alongside me, <laughs> but not out ahead, kind of, kind of leaning. We want to govern our. We want to determine what's right and wrong. We want to determine what is good and evil. We want to be like God, taking the the place of God. And so we grasp and we reach for the wrong things. Or if not the wrong things, we reach for the right things, but we reach for them in inappropriate ways. And that's, the, that's you know, the Beatles song, John Lennon's song, Madonna's song, Tom Jones's song. There's elements that those are all parts of, those are all parts of God's good creation. They're, they're all meant to have a place in God's good creation. But we're not to grasp for them and to pursue them in such a distorted way that, that, it, that it takes it out of order. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I mean, Jesus is ruthless. There's stories about, you know, you've got to hate your mum and dad and your brothers and sisters, you know, compared to your love for me. So he's not saying you literally hate them, but what, what he's arguing for is like your allegiance, your love for me and my kingdom has to be such that it's to, to hate these other things, to let go of these other things. So I didn't come to bring it all together. I'm going to end up bringing division. I'm going to end up bringing argument and conflict between brothers. It's such as this thing to pursue the kingdom of God. Oh, that's an uncomfortable, single-minded devotion to the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. It's like, yes, that's the invitation. And then all these other things, they will be given unto you. They'll fall into their right place, their right context, their right sphere of influence in your life and in your family and your world. 
oh, but, oh. The wisdom writer in Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Knowledge Him. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He'll make your path straight. We don't want to trust in the Lord with all our heart because some of us, we've learned a few things over the years. We've come to understand some things that maybe God doesn't, hasn't quite figured out yet. So we'd like a, we'd like a co-ruling, a co-leading thing with God. I mean, that's where none of us actually, well, we, you know, again, we know the right answer to the Sunday school test. You want to usurp the place of God? I don't. No, I really don't. Do you want to co-lead your life with God? Yes, I, I, I'd like that. I'd like, we, we could be equally yoked. You know, you, you get equally yoked with your spouse and you co-lead your family with your spouse. Yeah, there, there's some male headship for you. No, co-authority, co, co co-leading, co-headship. But with Christ, you don't get to form a co-relationship. We can be co-dependent on each other. It's like, no, God's the infinite source of all creation. You, you seek first the kingdom of God. Trust not in your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God. Oh, that's, that's tough. That's harsh. Sin is the ways in which we don't do that. We misrepresent what God's like. We, miss, we don't bring the fidelity of our worship to God. We, we scatter our worship. We build for ourselves a pantheon of gods. We're not too different to ancient Greece and ancient Rome and most ancient peoples. We've got a pantheon of gods that we, well, we've got the God of money and the God of promotion and the God of individualism and the God of free time and give me a break, you know. The God of, I've been overwhelmed by that before, I never have to go there again. It's the God of escapism that lets you off the hook. We've got this pantheon of things that we actually pursue and we, we feel like if we, oh, if we live according to the script there, yeah, that'll go well for us. There's probably aspects of truth to each of those things, except that our fidelity is to be to God alone. The creation poems of Genesis reveal that it isn't only us modern folk who grasp askew. As, as far back as history, as myth, as legend goes, that's been the way of humanity. Humans reaching for that which is forbidden. It's been the story from day one. Hearts askew. Knowing Christ is the Savior and the true human and the one that we're to live in allegiance to, the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul bemoans his inability to live up to it. Oh, what a wretched man I am, he says. What a wretched man I am, he says. You know, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's, he knuckles down. You know, he, when it came to being a Jew of the Jews and a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he nailed that. He was organizing stonings of Christians, so he was about as good as that as you could get. And we switched over to become a Christ follower. He was about as faithful and, and single-minded in his pursuit of following Jesus as you could get. And what's he declaring? Oh, I'm a wretched man. The things that I want to do, I don't do any of them. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing all of those things. Oh, wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death, this body of sin, this, these, these desires that... It's not so much that the, desire, the desires, we all have to manage the desires. They're, that's not the sin. The sin is these desires that we act upon, that we give into, that we don't rightly direct as God's called us to. That's the, the nature of sin. What a wretched man I am. From a theological point of view, then, we talk about sin as that which alienates us. It alienates us from God. It creates, it creates this gap. It creates this breakdown of relationship. 
No, you, we know in natural terms what it is maybe for a father to be alienated from their son. They're not on talking terms. There's no relationship. It's, 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 there's been a breakdown. So we end up alienated. But we're, we're alienated from one another. Alienated from creation. We're alienated in our very relationship with our own selves. How uncomfortable we are in our own skin. In our embodied being. Don't like that we look like this or smell like that or like to do this or this thing. We're uncomfortable even in ourselves. Well, the writer says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. It's like, yeah, we have a tendency to have ego that, that looks, looks after ourselves more than anyone else. We, we worship ourselves. There's a, there's a broken relationship there. Bob says, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, though. And, and there's many that don't. We're alienated even in regards to that. So our relationship with God, with one another, with creation, even in ourselves, we're not even comfortable in our own skin at times. It leaves us condemned. That's that sense of being guilty. We've fallen short. We're out of alignment. We're out of step. We're guilty of having failed to represent God as we should. It leaves us depraved. Depraved isn't that sense of, um, you are such a dirty sinner. It's not that. The depraved is the sense of, it, it just creeps into every sphere of life. It's, it's, it's just, it, it, the tentacles impact all of our relationships and our interactions and our nuance. It's, it's very, just weaves in amongst everything. One stage, it's those little foxes that spoil the vine. There's this ability for it to just like, there's not a place where it's not present, this tendency to go astray. And it leaves us enslaved. Enslaved is the sense of um, we can't pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps. We can't knuckle down and give it a double go during Lent. I'm going to give up caffeine and give up sugar and give up Netflix and give up sleep and give up hot showers. I'm going to do so much penance that I'm going to just pull myself up. And by the time I get to resurrection life, God's going to be well done, good and faithful. So it's like, no, none of those things will... You won't be able to do them anyway, but none of those things will... Don't, we're enslaved in our sins. We need something beyond to reach. And the psalmist talks about uh, he, he, he lifted us from the miry clay and set our feet upon the rock. We can't just like swim so fast that the clay goes hard and then we'll climb out ourselves. He, he, he lifts us from the miry clay. This is Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. in a sermon from the 1950s. He says, there's something wrong... I think we've got the next slide. There's something wrong with human nature, something basically and fundamentally wrong. A recognition of this fact stands as one of the basic assumptions of the Christian faith. The Bible is clear in setting forth the tragic dimensions of the gone wrongness, the gone wrongness of human nature. Whatever, wherever we discover life, we discover gone wrongness. Wherever there is a struggle for goodness, we discover, on the other hand, a powerful antagonism. Something demonic, he says, something that seems to bring the, the loveliest qualities to evil and the greatest endeavors to failure. Theologians have referred to this over the years as sin. There's something that stands at the core of life, this element of sin. And ever we think about man, we must think of this tragic fact that man is a sinner. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1950. I, I, I want to make the distinction between being able to um, drill down into the human psyche or the human body or the human story and finding 
the sin thing, as if it's a, as if it's a, um, something that has ontological entity or something. It's it's not that there's a thing. It's it's the, it's the failures. It's the it's the way we veer to the left and the right. It's not something that can be extracted. It's it's our bias in life, our, our inability to truly do that which God's called us to do. It's not a trendy idea in the 21st century. Uh, everyone knows there's something wrong with the world today, but secular hu- humanism is, is want to put the human heart at the center of that. There's more likely other explanations. Instead, the blame is directed at politics. Salvation will come via better policies and a better party. That'll, that'll turn things around. Or the economy. Salvation will come via better distribution of resource on one hand, or an even deeper commitment to um, neoliberal capitalism on the other hand. That'll, that'll turn things around and we'll, we'll find this utopia that we're looking for. Or education. Salvation will come by greater insight and understanding or technological limitations. Salvation will come by a scientific breakthrough and ability to one day colonize Mars. Then we will have, you know, fixed all of the problems in society. Or this or that or the other thing. Secular, secular humanism doesn't want to suggest that the issue really ultimately is the human heart that desires all sorts of things and then acts on those desires in a way that is inappropriate. So like we, we have this, like I said, this pantheon of modern gods that promise a different future. God that is politics and political parties and policies, God that is education or technology or whatever kind of thing, all of these things that we suppose will uh, make that difference. The reality is that all of those things contribute and have the ability to contribute to the well-being of society and the flourishing of society. All of those things have a role to play. And Christians should be involved in all of those things, in science and in technology and in education and in, in policymaking and in, in, in politics. And all. There's, a, there's a role for different Christian people to play in those roles. But they're not the thing that's going to bring utopia. They're not the thing that's going to save the world. They all contribute to human flourishing, but all of those things contribute to destruction in different ways as well. Policy over here that really helps that, the inevitable consequences of this thing over here gets left behind. A little bit whack-a-mole. Just get this thing sorted out. And it's like, great, got a new policy, that'll fix that. And boof, this other thing pops up. It's like, oh, we'll change the policy there, bang. Well, that, that flow and effect is this over here. It's like, oh, they all contribute. They all, and they all help to inch society forward in a, in a beautiful way. But they're not salvation. They're not the thing that will save. So we should have Christ followers in all of those spheres. But as Christ followers, we shouldn't pin our hopes on A, that being the problem, and B, that being the solution. Something deeper going on. We have a sin problem. Obvious at times, but beneath the surface on other occasions. Sin is not a developmental flaw, a psychological weakness, a mistake we make, or the unavoidable consequence of less than adequate forms of social structure or politics. Sin is the nature of our heart to desire all over the place and then to pursue those desires rather than live in fidelity to God. It's the abuse of the freedom that God's given us. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One author puts it like this. 
What Revelation makes known to us is confirmed by our own experience. For when we look into our heart, we find that we are drawn toward what is wrong and are sunk in many evils which do not come from our Creator God. Often refusing to acknowledge God as our source, we have upset, upset the relationship that links us to our last end. That's, a beautiful, that's such a poignant line. Often refusing to acknowledge God as our source, we've upset the relationship that actually wants, us, wants to lead us into the appropriate future, the right future. The Bible talks about the, the Greek words telos, the, the, the telos of God, the, the goals of God, the heavenly goals of God to make all things new. But having lost touch with our source, we, we inevitably lose touch with, with the very thing that wants to lead us into the right telos, the right future. And at the same time, we have broken the right order that should reign within ourselves and between ourselves and all of creation. So the Apostle Paul says, like I said, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? In Corinthians, I think it says that um, we're, we're, we're enslaved. Or we, we commit all, sorts of, all kinds of sin because we're enslaved to the fear of death. Because we're, because we're afraid of there being an end point. Well, we better, we, we better fit as much as we can into this thing. Uh, it's all coming to an end, so let's, let's just do whatever you want in the here and now. So this, this enslavement to the fear of death leads to all kinds of sin. But then Paul goes on, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Alienation, we find reconciliation through Christ. Condemnation, we find forgiveness and righteousness. Depravity, we find sanctification and discipleship and the sense of one day. So we have, we have uh, uh, justification is that sense of coming into right relationship with God, here and now. You're justified in Christ. We're going to gather at the communion table. You're invited to come with a heart of repentance and faith and receive the salvation of God, the grace, the mercy of God. We're, we're justified. We're in right standing with Christ. The righteousness of Christ is now our righteousness. That's the, the, the justification. Sanctification is the, the ongoing journey of becoming right, of growing in the things of God. Because you all know that when you went down in the waters of the baptism, you didn't come up in this, you know, the old had gone, the old had passed away and the new had come, but it wasn't like everything was magically fixed. There's this journey of discipleship to bring our allegiance. It's sanctification. But we don't journey that alone. We journey that with one another, with the Holy Spirit that dwells within, that comes alongside. Glorification is that sense of when all is made new again. We'll get to that place where those things are dealt with once and for all. Uh, enslavement, we find freedom, we find hope, we find possibility. He that the sun sets free is free indeed. So we have the sin problem, and I, I think as um, modern Christians, as intellectual Christians, as, as Christians in a contemporary world familiar with headlines and all that's happening in our world, it's easy to at times think that the core problem is policy or economics or education or all these other things. But if you, miss, if, you, if you define the problem wrong, you'll look through the wrong solution and you'll begin to promote these other things in a way that they become false gods, false ideologies. But when we recognize that the problem is sin, we realize what is that that will make me whole? What will wash away those sins? Nothing but the blood. Of Jesus. So at the cross, at the table of the Lord, in communion with God, in repentance and confession, in baptism, we're made alive in Christ. 
no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. We're taking off the flesh, so to speak, and learning to put on Christ. And it's this, like I say, this long obedience in the same direction. Right standing with God, alive to the problem of sin, but committed to journeying with Christ. As Christ follows, we've got nothing but good news when it comes to sin. Nothing but good news. I have no bad news for you in regards to sin this morning. Only good news. Only good news that, that all will be made well. All manner of things will be made well. That you can know love and grace and mercy and forgiveness today. No bad news. And we gather at the Lord's table to receive the salvation of God. We're counting down to Resurrection Sunday. But the, the thing with Easter now, I give you some of you a little get-out-of-jail-free card here. Not the jail of sin, just the jail of your fasting for Easter. From a technical perspective, every Sunday in Lent, sorry, every Sunday in the calendar is a mini Resurrection Sunday. Easter Sunday is the Resurrection Sunday, but all Sundays are a mini Resurrection Sunday. Um, and so often in Lenten fast, you'd fast during the week, but on Sunday you didn't have to... You didn't have to give that up. The problem is some of you have given up things that if you have it every seven days, it's more or less like you haven't given it up anyway. So you're just like, yeah, this has made it a whole lot easier. But we're counting down to Resurrection Sunday. But every Sunday is this mini resurrection where we gather at the Lord's table and we don't have to wait for, for, for resurrection life to defeat sin and death. It's already been defeated and we can embrace that and we can know that now. So we're counting down to the defeat of sin and death, even though we know it's already... That's why Easter's hard to preach. There's a... Twist at the end. He rises from the dead. Yeah, exactly. You get crickets because like, we, we all know that. It's like, it's like, so we can't hide from the fact that even though we're in Lent, even though we're fasting, even though we're in repentance, even though we're talking about sin, it's already been won. It's already been defeated. We already have that in the here and now. But before we jump to that, there's an invitation to be sober-minded and clear-headed in regards to Sin and the nature of sin. There's something wrong with the world today, and we don't know what it is. That was Aerosmith, but there's something wrong with the world. Man, I'm good. Aerosmith, as well as Madonna. I didn't even thought of that. Something wrong with the world today. We don't know what it is. No, we do know what it is. It's that we have this sin bias, this failure to represent what God's like. And it's not the desire that that's okay. We just got to learn to manage that. It's that we, we don't manage that as well as we should all the time. But we come back to the cross and we receive love and grace and forgiveness. Ultimately, it doesn't go well for us when we pursue sin. Pride alienates us from God and from others. What's the problem with pride? Well, ultimately with pride, we don't get the help we need. We don't talk to the people that we need to talk to. We don't talk to God with the honesty that we need to talk to God. We don't talk to others with the honesty we need to talk to others. And the pride actually gets in the way and it actually hampers us. And if there's a little, a little cut or a little scratch or a little infection, you know, I've been doing this long enough to now. You see the arc of people's lives. It might not be a big deal now, but 15 years from now, if your pride has got in the way of you dealing with that thing, oh, it doesn't go well. Lying. Ultimately, it's the truth that sets us free. When we build our, house around, houses, our lives around lies, we build this house of cards. And eventually, it, it crumbles. Can't, can't stand up to the, the wind and waves of life. Greed, I mentioned that, self-centered, ever-grasping, shortcuts. Often it's the sin of omission, the sin of not looking outwards like you should have looked outwards. 
And, and it puts you in a wrong space, actually, and emotionally, of how you see the world. It, you, don't, you don't find the flourishing life that you're called to. Envy or covetousness, unsatisfied comparison. You let that go unchecked, you, you, unchecked, you discover that you're never content in life. You're never happy in life. It weaves its way in there. You're always comparing others and you're jealous of others. And now you, you, you start to dehumanize others. These, these little things. It, does, it doesn't have to be like that you were a murderer and killed 10 people. That's not ideal either. Don't get me wrong. But covetousness and envy, can, can, it gets in in a way that it doesn't lead to a flourishing life. You don't want to leave it, let it go for 10 years, 15 years. You want to bring these things to the cross. All right, let's stand to our feet. We're going to gather for communion this morning. I'm going to read a couple of passages, and then we will take communion together. Joel chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Rend your heart and not your garments. Don't, don't, don't fast anything for Lent if you don't want to. Just, just repent and, and bring your heart back to Christ in new ways. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings from the Lord your God. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before you. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Last one, 2 Corinthians. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. And now is the day of salvation. Up on the screen, we've got a prayer of repentance. Uh, invite you to pray that with me if you'd like to this morning, this first Sunday of Lent. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, by what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. You can't help talk about sin without talking about good news. It's not, it's not a bad news story. This is a good news story. So the table has been prepared, not that of the church, but that of our Lord Jesus Christ, made ready for those that have followed Christ faithfully, for those that have tried but failed.
There's space for everyone at the table of the Lord. You come not because of your own goodness, but come because of the goodness of God. Come and meet the risen Christ and eat from the tree of life rediscovered. Turn your hearts towards Jesus and receive the salvation of God. For Jesus is the bread of life, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come to where heaven and earth overlap the table of the Lord and receive the love, the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please come. Table here at the front, two tables down the back. Receive the love and grace of Christ this morning.